Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is a by-the-book episode, a conversation with Lee Camp. And on the podcast today, I have invited Lee to come and have a conversation with us about his book, Scandalous Witness, a Little Political Manifesto for Christians. And I came across Lee's book several months ago, and I have actually referenced it several times on the podcast already, um, even referencing his definition of politics in a, in a sermon that I published several several months ago on the podcast as well. And reading and rereading and highlighting throughout Lee's book, it has become profoundly clear to me that Lee is, is a voice we can't ignore. And um, he writes in an incredibly logical thoughtful, analytical, easy to follow, but very poignant, very direct, very blunt style. And it's one that I've found very refreshing because Lee is addressing issues that are really ambiguous and kind of sticky and really weird and hard to separate concepts. And he does it with absolute precision. And I I thought it might be helpful. We will reference several of the titles of his chapters, which he doesn't call chapters. He rather calls propositions um, throughout, throughout our conversation. But just to let you know kind of the logical flow of where Lee is coming from and how he's addressing this issues, I thought it might be helpful to just read for you his table of contents. That will set us up well. I've thought maybe I could have done this for other by the book episodes, but Lee stood out as one that I thought would be exceptionally helpful for you as listeners. But the way his book is set up is he lists a proposition. He's going to make a statement. He's going to make a claim. And then in the first paragraph of each chapter, he simply states it outright. This is what I'm going to try to argue. This is why I think this is true. And then the remainder of his chapter is his explanation, his defense for why that proposition holds up. And typically what he does is he begins with a proposition, he lays out some groundwork, he brings us right into the New Testament to an understanding of what the kingdom of God is and how it relates to kingdoms of this world, how it relates to empires, how it relates to the nation state, how Israel's relationship and understanding of the ways of God with them in the Old Testament relate into the way Jesus lived and taught and believed and functioned in the New Testament. And so it's very well thought out, very um, methodical, really, and is dealing a lot with the relationship between America as a political empire and the kingdom of God. And oftentimes the ways that those two things, again, are blurred or made a bit ambiguous or a little bit sticky. And Lee does an excellent job of separating the concepts the way they need to be understood and showing us where we are in error or where we need to correct or where and how the church can stand up and actually be the church in the middle of such a chaotic um, upheaval of political unrest. And so here are Lee's um, propositions. There are 15 of them throughout this book, and I just wanted to read those for you by way of introduction. Proposition number one, history is not one damn thing after another. And I do think I need to point out to you that some of his chapters are rather blunt. And so just to give you that little qualification as we begin. Proposition two, the end of history has already begun. Number three, American hope is a bastard. Four, Christianity is neither a prostitute nor a chaplain. Proposition 5, the United States is not the hope of the world. Proposition 6, the United States was not, is not, and will not be a Christian nation. Proposition 7, how Christian values and the Bible corrupt Christianity. Proposition 8, every empire falls. Number 9, Christian partisanship is like a fistfight on the Titanic. Number 10, hostile forces have a role in the unfolding of history. Proposition 11, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a politic. Proposition 12, liberal political puissance is not the goal. Proposition 13, exemplary political witness is the goal. 
Proposition 14, Christianity is not countercultural. And finally, Proposition 15, Christian engagement must always be ad hoc. And as you can get a taste just from reading the table of contents, you get a grasp of some of what Lee's going to talk about. So we have a conversation for about 45 minutes. Lee's very gracious, very insightful, very courageous in writing some of the things that he has written. But I want you to listen and listen closely. I mean, Lee will define terms like liberal and he will challenge our use of the terms conservative and liberal to talk about our political leanings today. And say rather that they ought to be called conservative liberal and liberal liberal. And he'll go into details as to why and then address what many people mean when they try to argue for the Christian perspective or the Christian political um, position. And Lee has categories that are new to me and maybe new to you, but are helpful, biblically speaking, for how to wrap our minds around things like this. So I'm really thankful for the conversation you are about to hear. I offer to you the conversation I had with Lee Camp. Welcome back, Unbinding the Bible listeners. Today we have another By the Book episode, a conversation with Lee Camp on his book, Scandalous Witness, a a little political manifesto for Christians. And by way of introduction, Lee is an Alabamian by birth, a Tennessean by choice, and has sojourned joyfully in Indiana, Texas, and Nairobi. Lee likes to think of himself as a radical conservative or an orthodox liberal. He loves teaching college and seminary students at Lipscomb University, delights in flying sailplanes, finds dark chocolate-covered almonds with turbinado sea salt to be (laughs) one of the finest collections of the human species, and gives great thanks for his lovely wife, Laura, his three sons, and an abundance of family and friends in Music City and beyond. Besides teaching full-time, Lee hosts Nashville's Token Show and has authored three books. Lee, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Joshua. Grateful for the invitation. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, so as I shared, um, listeners, Scandalous Witness, a little political manifesto for Christians. That's the one of Lee's three books that I've had the privilege of reading and wanted to bring Lee on the show just to talk about this. Um, at the time of this recording, we are just a week away from election day. So this is um, obviously a hot topic and probably always is, but maybe more so now. And so Lee, if you um, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit about you, just share with our listeners maybe what what led you, what some of your thought processes were that led to the writing of this book, and then just um, kind of set us up for what your book is about. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I've wondered myself about some of the things that led me to the, these interests. Um, you know, when I was in college, I between my junior and senior year in college, I attended the Republican National Convention in New Orleans and um, remember proudly getting my picture made next to Jerry Falwell um, <laughs> in the streets of uh, oh, wow. New Orleans. And um, and so I grew up in that sort of world that just presumed uh, that a sort of Christian witness is going to ally pretty easily with uh, Republican values. Um, and I think the place that some of that began to be challenged um, is uh, probably in the in the streets of Nairobi. Actually, my wife and I went to Nairobi after uh, I finished my MDiv and she finished her MBA, and I found myself a, a friend there who would take me out and um, introduce me to street kids. And there were things about what I experienced learning to become friends with street kids that challenged a lot of the kind of naive individualism that I think I had been uh, assuming for a long time. That is, I began to see that there were systems and structures of power at play in the world and systems and structures of of injustice that pressed back against um, 
good-hearted individualistic pursuits and that it wasn't as simple as maybe I had assumed with some of my stereotypical conservatism. And so I began to kind of pay a lot more attention to stereotypical liberal notions of systemic issues and systemic injustices and so forth. And and then in, in more recent years, I think I've, I've began to realize that um, it seems to me that a Christian witness is going to need to simultaneously simultaneously do two things, at least two things. Uh, one, it's going to be able to it's going to need to be able to see uh, what can be celebrated about the right and the left, and critiqued about both right and left. And second, it needs to it Christianity has a beautiful sort of different approach altogether than the continuum between the American left and the American right. And our task is not to find the middle place on that continuum between right and left, nor to identify Christianity with either the right or the left. And we're seeing a lot of very grave damage being done to Christian witness because people are presuming that we've got to choose the right or the left. But instead, to realize that Christianity has this beautiful, different sort of politic, as I describe it in the book, a politic, a different alternative way of life that is truly can truly be good news to our communities, but because we've gotten so caught up in the American agenda, in many ways we've lost what Christianity really is all about. Yeah, well, that's exactly how your book comes across, and I, I, um, you know, you have a little tagline, I guess. You're neither right nor left nor religious, and repeat that several times. Um, right. Yeah. yeah, and by and by uh, by. Neither right nor left, of course, as as, uh, indicated there, I mean that on the American spectrum, stereotypical right, stereotypical left in the American political context. And by not religious, um, I'm pushing back against those who over-spiritualize the gospel. That is, um, since the Enlightenment, one way of construing what people mean by the word religion is this sort of privatized set of convictions that's maybe about our existential angst or on the one end or maybe on the other end, it's about the afterlife and the beliefs and convictions we hold about our personal relationship with God. And that in both of those cases, it doesn't have anything to do with the real world and human history right now. And so I'm pushing back against that in the book and suggesting that actually we would do a lot better to understand Christianity as a interpretation of history or claim about history as opposed to a religion in the sense I just described. Um, That it's about that the central claim of the gospel is saying that the fundamental turning point in human history has occurred, and now we live in anticipation of the consummation of that turning point in history to come still in the future. And so our whole way of life is grounded in something that's happened in history and something that will happen in history in its all fullness. Um, and thus, our take on the sorts of questions raised in the American political debates is a different sort of basic considerations from the start. Yeah, and I think you it was really helpful in your chapter two, which you titled the end of history has already begun. Um, I, I love asking questions to several of the authors whose books I've read and whose interviews I'm doing, like the one we're doing here. Just um, how have we found ourselves in this mess? And you you straight up asked and answered that question on page 30 and 31. You said, how, how have we found ourselves in this mess? One plausible interpretation runs this way. And I just wanted to read your words to you, but also for our listeners who may not have read your book yet. Number one, We bought into the Western notion that religion is a private affair, unrelated to politics and history and sociology. Number two, but knowing that history and politics and social structures still matter a great deal, we cast about to find some bearer of historical meaning. Three, not finding it then, as we had already supposed, in Christianity, we yielded this role to the nation state as the primary player in the unfolding of history. And four, Finally, convinced of the importance of being politically and socially relevant, we had to get on the right, we had to get on the side of the correct political partisan agenda, nation state, or power mongering entity. And um, you you say quite a bit 
in your book about the relationship between the Christian gospel or the kingdom of God and the nation state. And um, that may be new for some people. I know living in the South where I live, um, it's a lot of times um, believed to be the same thing. So can you talk a little bit about those distinctions. I know some of your chapter titles were very blunt <laughs> and, and direct, which I appreciate and have shared with our listeners. So they know your chapter titles just as we set this conversation up. But could you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, one of the one of the pieces of deconstruction that we need to do. Uh, and it's a and it's a work of deconstruction that I think probably potentially offends both the right and the left equally is to deconstruct this notion of messianic pretense that's assigned to the nation state. Uh, and so, in, in in one of those chapters, I talk, uh, for example, about how the the, the Christian notion of hope has been ascribed to or bedded by uh, the, the nation state. And so I suggest that, well, let me back up first, that the, the Christian notion of hope is a theological category and a theological assertion, namely that uh, we anticipate the consummation of the kingdom of God begun in Jesus of Nazareth in the, dearth, the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. We anticipate the consummation of that. And going back to the Hebrew prophets, the consummation of that means things like um, the ending of war. It means uh, uh, that every, uh, to use the language of Isaiah 65, no mother shall bear a child for calamity, and uh, every every old man shall dwell in his own house and sit under his own vine and his own fig tree, and God will wipe away every tear from every eye. This beautiful poetic poetic expression of all things being made right and justice being established in our communities, and oppression being undone, and illness and sickness being uh, vanquished, and hostility being defeated, or to use the language of the New Testament, death itself being defeated. And so this is the, when, when we, when Christians use the language of hope, this is that for which we hope. It's not you know, surprisingly to some, the Christian hope is not going to heaven. Uh, the, this is not the way the New Testament characterizes Christian hope. Instead, Christian hope is about new heavens and new earth. It's about God wiping away every tear from every eye and all that that means. And so what has happened too often is that uh, given that we've fallen prey, as we've already indicated, to this sort of privatized notions of religion and that religion is about the afterlife or spirituality that's removed from society and history and politics. Uh, having given prey to that, then, as from those texts you just read a moment ago, we then let the notion of, or we let the practices of the nation state get interwoven with Christian eschatological hope. And so, I, one of the provocative chapter titles you're alluding to there is a, I talk about. Um, a bastardized hope. That is that a bastardized hope, and, and I mean that word in, in the most literal, you know, obviously it's a metaphorical use of the word, but it's a, metaf- a metaphorical literal use here. That is, um, it's this sort of assertion about um, that we pervert Christian notions of hope when we let the nation state become entangled in an illicit relationship with notions of hope. And lots of people, I think, have failed to see the ways in which this is so predominant in American history. And, um, for example, Thomas Jefferson will say something like that the United States is the world's great hope. Or, Or Abraham Lincoln, during the time of the Civil War, will say that the United States and its form of governance are the world's last great hope. Or we have um, Woodrow Wilson during the time of World War One. Wilson is a good Presbyterian uh, and a Democrat. We want to make sure that we note that this is a nonpartisan sort of um, messianic pretense here for the United States. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, good Presbyterian, good Democrat, 
uh, sees the United States entry into World War One as what he called the war to end all wars. So literally picking up the Christian eschatological notion of the end of war, and he's describing not the way of Christ as the way to end war, but the ways of the nation state, the warring nation state to end war. And the sort of pretense that he has, messianic kind of pretense he has, is shocking because at one point he had a speech, uh, as I recollect it was after the war, uh, where he says, at last the world will know America as the savior of the world. That's a quote. It's just a shocking sort of quote. Wow. Um, or And you can see this, you know, as you go on up through, you know, Pre- President Trump has had these shocking things to say about allegiance to the United States and his 2019 State of the Union address picks up all sorts of kind of biblical illusion and language and ascribes it to the United States. Or Madeleine Albright, you know, I've got in in the book a shocking quote by Madeleine Albright because uh, when she talks about America taking up uh, the ways of of war, she says, if we have to use force, it's because we are America. And then she says, we are the indispensable nation. We see further into the future. A shocking sort of claim about the omniscience of the United States and the indispensability, historical indispensability of the United States. And we we could multiply these examples, but they all point to the ways in which we have falsely conflated American Christian hope, uh, American hope and Christian hope, and thereby we pervert the Christian notions of hope. Wow. Yeah, Lee, that was a great, that was a great just summary. I, I had written down several of those, uh, w- one additional one being Ronald Reagan, who likened America to a city shining on a hill or a yeah. shining city on a hill, which is, that's straight out of Matthew 5, um, Sermon on the Mount language. Um, yeah, and he also, um, I also pointed out there how he, he picks up not only the language of the Sermon on the Mount, as you noted, he also picks up the language of the Apostle Paul or Paul will say neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or free. He'll say things like neither Christian or Jew, Democrat or Republican, but we are all Americans. Um, or then he'll use the language of uh, Revelation 21 and 22 about a city and its gates being open. And it's just, it's remarkable about how these presidents have learned and been celebrated by Christians using such illusions in such a, uh, a loose way, uh, illicit way with regard to the United States. And again, the point here is not for us to become American haters, right? Right. Um, it, it's that anytime, from a Christian perspective, anytime anyone does that with regard to any nation state, it is uh, highly problematic, if not idolatrous. Uh, and again, it's not about hatred of the nation state. We, there are things about our nation uh, that I, I do and want to celebrate. Um, but when it overreaches and oversteps its historical bounds and purposes, it becomes quite dangerous. Yeah, no, that's really good. And and I guess, you know, I keep coming back to this quote that I'd read here about these four steps, this process, how we found ourselves in this mess. And I guess that really is the way it, there seems to be a relationship between that individual Christian, you know, like, like, you you are, are or I am or however versus what the collective is and what the representation representative collective and yeah. somehow it seems as if well I'm this individual Christian it's my personal private faith but when it comes to the collective it, it's almost as if the tendency is to look at America as that collective not the church and, and I think that's what was pretty gripping here when you're saying this is a political manifesto you know christianity is a politic we're, we're not dealing here with um well actually let me not phrase the question i'll just ask it to you can you talk to us a little bit about how christ the christian faith is political and then some of the distinctions you you help us make about it that it isn't partisan which i think a lot of people confuse those adjectives when they talk well let's not get political well no we need to be political. We're always political, but being partisan is a different, a different story. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think the way I put it in the book is to suggest that those who say Christianity is not political or ought not be political 
simply do not understand what Christianity is. <laughs> yeah. And obviously yeah. that's an offensive yes. way to put it, I suppose, but <laughs> but I think it's true. <laughs> that's right. That's you know, right. It, it's it's that and it and it's not the lesser claim. I'm not interested in the lesser claim that Christianity has political implications. Um, I'm saying Christianity is itself political and it is itself a politic. And so going back to the, you know, the Greek word polis was the Greek word for the city-state, the community. And politics was the art of arranging the affairs of a community. And so politics classically asks questions about how how we're going to do life together. And so inevitably then it asks questions about the use of wealth. It asks questions about uh, sharing and sharing resources. It asks questions about marriage and children. It asks questions about reconciliation and practices of forgiveness. It asks questions about how we're going to deal with our enemies. And and obviously, anyone who's ever read the New Testament knows, well, like, duh, that's the stuff Jesus talks about all the time. Yeah. And so seen that way, uh, we come face to face with this notion, well, wait a second, okay, so Christianity itself is a politic. It is political. And so when we suggest that, um, or make the claim that we, we, we must insist that Christianity is political, but that does not mean to be partisan. In other words, to claim that Christianity is political doesn't mean we jump on either the American uh, Republican bandwagon or the American Democrat bandwagon, uh, but instead that we're probably from a Christian political, from a Christian politic, we will have things to say, both both appreciation and critique about the right and appreciation and critique about the left or anywhere else on that continuum uh, that we might find ourselves or we might find some interlocutor or some person of good faith that we want to have conversation with. Yes. And I like that. I think as a we stand outside and we're able to commend and critique where we see it, we're not married in that sense to a party where we only defend or we only critique, which goodness, I mean, that's, that's the public rhetoric um, in our culture as a whole. And it was encouraging to hear you to be able to read you saying we, we need to be something different than both of those, yeah. of those yeah. things. Um, could you talk a little bit, maybe this was part of the discussion, but you, you took issue with the word liberal and the word conservative. Um, and then you unpacked what the word liberal actually means and why you, you proposed um, new names for those two sides of the, yeah. um, the partisan discussion. Can you talk yeah. about that? Sure. Um, yeah. So the, the word uh, li- or liberalism classically understood is a political movement that occurs coming out of Europe in reaction to hierarchical or traditional forms of governance in Europe. And so um, the American experiment itself, with its focus upon the individual, with its focus upon democracy and and Republican forms of governance, in opposition to monarchy, for example, in opposition to uh, traditionally uh, established church, um, with uh, emphasis upon freedom with regard to economic activity, all of these emphases upon individualistic forms of liberty are what we mean by liberalism. And then there are these institutions of liberalism, like we've already indicated, you know, representational government, uh, separation of church and state, um, and the and and freedom and economic endeavors. All of these things then, or free market capitalism, all of these things are seen as liberal uh, political institutions that are indebted to classical political liberalism. And so what we have in the United States is a debate about how we play that out. And so we have, in other words, conservative liberals and liberal liberals. uh, And oftentimes what's happening between conservative liberals and liberal liberals is that they're arguing about the different places we put constraints upon individual freedom. So, in other words, um, we all know that if, if your basic, in, in basic vision of a political community is maximizing freedom of individuals, 
without a rigorous discussion about the common good of the community. Uh, we all know that, that that can't go very long, very well, unless you start putting some limits upon individual liberty in some way or the other. Um, and so oftentimes um, the conservatives want to draw those lines in certain areas and the liberals want to draw those lines in other areas. But what they're arguing about is liberalism. They're not arguing about how best to be Christians in the world. They're arguing about how best to be liberals in the world. And it's, it's indispensable, I think, for Christians to understand that's what's going on in these debates. They're not trying to figure out what it looks like to be Christian in the world, whether they're right or left. They're trying to figure out what it looks like to be good liberals in the world. Um, and I, so I think that that sort of construal can give us a sort of uh, helpful detachment. And by detachment, I don't mean emotional apathy. I mean detachment in the sense of we can begin to see this for what it is rather than being sucked into an intramural debate thinking that this is the essential debate to which we must uh, have an answer or to which we must help come at, things come out on some given issue. Yes, and that's that was an excellent um, summary in your chapter three, which you title American Hope is a Bastard. Um, one again, one of those blunt yeah, in your face titles, which were great. Um, you just said that. You said both liberal liberals and conservative liberals support liberal institutions, but they disagree about the parameters. Right. Um, and then you just made an example. A king telling a businessman how to run his business is as repulsive to the conservative liberal as a king telling a woman what she will do with her womb is to the liberal liberal. And yeah, disagreeing about the parameters, who, what areas of our life ought the government to ha have a say-so over what we do and what we don't right. do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so somewhere I'm, I'm missing my place. I can't find exactly what it is. Um, there it is. And it's jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, continuing with this idea of, of partisanship, then I, I loved how you said that. You said, we're not really disagreeing about what it means to be Christian. We're having a disagreement about what it means to be liberal. And that, that's a wow. That that's a nuance. I need to continue to lean into. But you said on page one hundred one, um, great title: Christian partisanship is like a fist fight on the Titanic. Um, that's my <laughs> the most memorable chapter title of all of them. For that was was this one. And you just said again. I think this is very fitting right now. Like I said, a week before the election, but to be wildly partisan about presidential elections in the midst of the late days of an empire. To be ideologically hostile regarding small government versus big government, to be blindly belligerent regarding capitalism versus socialism, without keeping all these questions in their place of relative importance over against larger concerns, to cast aside all other concerns in favor of a government-mandated pro-life policy on the one hand versus a calloused rhetoric of pro-choice on the other, all of this represents the failure of Christianity in America. Um, Lee, that was just, I mean, that almost just jumped out at the page when I, when I read that, can you talk for a few moments about that relationship, maybe about what it means to be Christian and how that doesn't work with jumping, you know, on board of a, of a government kind of telling people what they should and shouldn't, you know, be doing with their lives. Um, well, I, I, it is interesting to me that so many people have indicated that that particular line about Christian partisanship is like a fistfight on the Titanic. Um, and I, and I will say that while I do find the metaphor helpful and important, otherwise I wouldn't use it as a chapter title. <laughs> right. I, it, it's also the one that makes me the most uncomfortable, uh, myself, okay. um, and the reason I think it makes me uncomfortable, as I try to s spell out in the book, is that I think that um, one could presume by that that I'm trying to say that sociopolitical matters don't matter, that sociopolitical issues don't matter, that the things that Republicans and Democrats may be fighting about right now don't matter. And as I try to say throughout the book, 
the point of all of this is not to say these things don't matter. That's why I insist, you know, we don't want to be quote religious as if this stuff doesn't matter because it's just some sort of naive spirituality or some disembodied spirituality. But sociopolitical issues do matter very much because they have profound impact upon our neighbor. Uh, they have profound impact upon the poor. They have profound impact upon the marginalized and they have profound impact upon uh, those who are often dispossessed by the powers that be, and those are precisely the folks that Scripture so insistently and regularly shows a special concern for. Um, that being said, uh, what I'm trying to do in this particular chapter is to say, or in this particular proposition, is to say that um, when we fail to realize uh, that we that th- that the debates that are raging in front of us are the 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 debate between the conservative liberal and the liberal liberal. Um, then we've gotten ourselves onto an imperialistic agenda, the American imperialistic agenda, and we know from a Christian perspective that in the long run, the American imperialistic project is going to go down. Um, that all empires fall, all empires fail. And since all empires fail and all empires fall, we can know that the American empire will fall and will fail as well. And so to let our ultimate concern be the triumph of one partisan position on the American imperialist train, if you will, uh, it's made us miss the larger project, the larger mission to which we are called in human history, namely the kingdom of God. Um, and so it's those sorts of things I'm trying to navigate, uh, which, I, which I think requires a lot of care uh, so that we're not misheard. Uh, but I, I definitely think it, it is important for us to try to articulate these things so that we ourselves don't get wrought up into an agenda that is not really uh, the agenda required of us by the gospel. Am yeah, I making sense with all that? You are making sense, and that was helpful too. I, I was, I'm always curious to what authors, uh, uh, what parts of your own book have proven. Did I say too much, or which parts, yeah. have been, you know, maybe critiqued, and then you you step back and you think, hmm, maybe that was, yeah, I, I could see how somebody could critique that point. Um, is that where you've gotten some of the most pushback, or have you? What 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 kind of opposition have you received to your book? Um. You know, by and large, the and surprisingly to me, the feedback has been uh, on the overwhelmingly positive, and I've been thankful for that. Um, and you know, I would speculate it's because um, there's so much being said in the partisan right and the partisan left that people are genuinely interested in trying to find some different sort of way. And so I've been I've been thankful to see that. I was in a doing a public gathering. Uh, last week, and the interviewer asked me in front of this crowd something like, what part of this book do you suspect makes people most uncomfortable? And so I started talking about the chapter on American Hope as a Bastard. And um, and then after I was done, I asked him, I said, um, I said, what part of it makes you most uncomfortable? And he said precisely that, that particular part, because he said, I feel like um, I have to navigate what does it look like for me still to love my country and love my people and take seriously the sorts of things that you are saying here? Um, but I do, I do anticipate that that's the part that may be most difficult for a lot of people to accept. However, as my interviewer said that night, he suggested that that might also be a generational thing, that it may be that the 20s and the 30-somethings uh, have, a, have a bit more um, level-headedness about some of the American uh, endeavor, whereas people in their fifties and sixties and older might still carry about a sort of uh, unnuanced love of country, uh, and so I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was his take on uh, some possibilities there. Yeah, and and even that, um, it gets it gets sticky because while I see you're right, I I see more of an openness there with the twenties and thirties, but that oftentimes is interpreted by the, some of the older generation as, you know, they've been swamped by the media or they've been taken over to, they're taught to hate our country. And, and I, I want us to get to a place, I guess, as a 
as a Christian church where we can learn how to both critique and commend the same entity um, without someone thinking if you commend it, then you are 100% in favor of every decision they've ever made at any point. And if you critique anything, that that means you must hate them and loathe them and see nothing good in them. And I don't know, do you have any insights as to where along the way we lost the ability to both love and critique something um, instead just have gotten so polarized? No, I, that's a great question. And I, I do not know, I don't have any sort of historical awareness of how that has seemingly increasingly developed. Uh, you know, I know there, there are folks who make the argument that we find that particularly acute these days because of social media algorithms. And that seems to be one plausible explanation of that, uh, that we are continually being formed in our own biases and locked into one particular way of seeing things and that particular issues all get lumped together. Uh, but I think that you're exactly right, that we have to find a way, especially as Christians, to learn to do this sort of work. Um, and I think, I think we, can, we should begin looking for examples um, and always have ready at hand kind of a stock of examples of what we might mean that by. So for me, for example, um, I've always thought that the stereotypical right in their uh, anxiety or fear or suspicion of overreach of power as especially potentially made manifest in federal bureaucracy. You know, I look at that and I think, well, yeah, me too. You know, it's like, of course we ought to be mindful of that because that's historically the tendency of power is always to overreach. And this is the New Testament vision of the principalities and the powers that these things are created for good. And yet they all, they, they often inevitably, almost inexorably overreach. And rather than serving communities, they end up enslaving communities. And so I think when the right is concerned about that, I think, yep, I'm with you. I hear you. And I think you're exactly right on that. But it confuses me then why people on the right who have that sort of vision can't appreciate the way people, again, speaking stereotypically, how people on the left have that very same concern about global corporations. And it's like they're both just concerned about the overreach of power. Why can't they both say to each other, you know, you're exactly right about that. We ought to be concerned about the potential overreach of federal bureaucracy, and we ought to be concerned about the potential overreach of global capitalism. And, and these are both things that we ought to be mindful of, and we, we don't have to choose one over against the other. They're both right. They're both pointing us towards something that we ought to be mindful of and careful of. And I think that there are lots of examples like that, but we just have to step back and ask what are the larger concerns that are being raised here, and how do those larger concerns relate to concerns that we also uh, have because of the Christian narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really good. <clears throat> I think to, for us to be able to separate ourselves, like you, you've been saying enough to be able to offer that. Um, and yeah, be able to say, I see what you see and I agree with you. And now let's take it to this next, you know, to this next level if we can. Right. Um, one, uh, one chapter that really jumped out to me as well. And um, by the way, I've, I've, read few books, I think, whose chapter, like the logical progression of the book, like your your book is probably the most logically consistent. You know, you get to the end of each chapter and my mind is already reeling toward exactly what your next proposition huh. is going to be. So well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, I was, it, it, it's just very, it was very refreshing, very clean and orderly. And um, right after the chapter, which you can mention if you want, we, uh, the United States was not, is not, and will not be a Christian nation, um, which I've spoken about a handful of times on, on my podcast to our hmm. listeners through various points. But your very next chapter, I wondered if you could talk about that and feel free to tie it back in with you know, the United States and the Christian nation. But your Proposition 7 was just really intriguing. And I think this one, I want you to unpack it because I think this one gets so much 
assumed press and just assumed that it's right that to listen to somebody state it like this is uh, so interesting. But it said you, your proposition was how Christian values and the Bible corrupt Christianity. <laughs> so could you, you know, I know we've got about five minutes left and uh, you've got to move on with your day, but could you talk to us a little bit about what you're getting at there? Sure thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I try to play out there that um, we've, we've too often reduced Christian social or political witness to a so-called biblical values agenda. And I think that that really is, is highly dangerous um, because what's happening very often in a biblical values kind of approach is that, you know, you, you get one or two isolated ideas and they get abstracted from the overarching narrative of the Bible itself. And by pulling it out of the narrative, it actually can be corrupting to what the Bible itself wants us to be about. You know, so, so in other words, um, if you take some given biblical value, whatever it is, and then you say, well, this is the biblical value, this is what the Bible says. And then you think, well, by hook or by crook, we're going to make sure everybody does this. Well, because, because you're ignoring, in this case, for example, uh, the vision of Scripture that God comes in our midst as one who offers and persuades as opposed to uses compulsory violence to require us to love him or to do to any given sort of thing, that we have this sort of crucified Messiah who loves us even unto death and gives us his radical liberty to reject our, our maker even to the point of killing the incarnate one in our midst. Um, if, if, if you pull out any biblical value and you forget that basic structure of the narrative, then you can be corrupting the basic narrative itself. And it's, it's this, uh, as I say in the uh, chapter, it's this problem of redaction, right? That you can, you can just block out a few words of any given story, but, but corrupt or pervert the whole meaning of the story by blocking out certain words or phrases. And, um, there's this shocking exhibition of this uh, literally on exhibit uh, at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. right now, which is uh, the so-called Slave Bible. And there was this Bible that was done in the, in the 19th century uh, that was published by a missionary society. And what they did was that they, they wanted a Bible that could be used to in, in Christian formation for slaves. But in order to try to get it uh, past the slave masters, apparently this is this is at least one uh, reasonable speculation about what was going on in the background of the publishing of this work. Uh, they they redacted large parts of the biblical story, and so for example, you'll have um, Joseph being a good slave in Pharaoh's household, but you won't have the story of the Exodus. Or which is just like mind-boggling, right? And and you'll have you'll have the stuff in the New Testament about slaves being obedient to your masters, um, but you won't have any of the sort of radical commitments of gospel hos- hospitality or radical notions that would subvert uh, any such notions of social or hierarchical oppression. And so again, it's this sort of danger that we get ourselves into by thinking, well, we can say, well, the Bible says this, and then we latch on to that as if what it's going to mean to be Christian in our political context is to keep harping on, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, while ignoring the narrative superstructure of the Bible itself. Wow, and the narrative superstructure, I think that was that was brilliant. As you say, the overarching Christian narrative, and if we don't, if we extract those things, then we can, uh, yeah, like you said, um, totally miss that story and come to conclusions that the Bible itself, as it's telling its own story, um, wouldn't be leading us to those same conclusions. Um, but yeah, I just, I loved that, that proposition. I thought it's just... You know, because like you said, getting your picture taken next to Jerry Falwell in the age of the Christian values, you know, the family values and all these things that the religious, um, the religious right as it was, or the moral majority or some of those things were built around originally. Um, Yeah, I think your, your call to bring it back to the scriptural narrative is, is crucial. Um, Well, Lee, thank you so much for, uh, 
for taking the time to talk with us about your book. I, I really, um, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Joshua. I really appreciate the invitation. And um, if there are others who are interested, we actually have just released recently an online course on the book. Uh, the folks could find out information about that at leecamp.com. And we would also love folks to come join us um, on our podcast as well at The Token Show, which you can find out more about at tokensshow.com uh, slash podcast. And we'd love folks because I think some of your listeners might enjoy a lot of the material we develop over there as well. But thanks so much for the invitation. Really grateful and uh, grateful for your work. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, we'll definitely, I'll make some links to your website and to your podcast as well. Great. On the show thank you. This episode. So wonderful. Lee, it's been a real, real privilege. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. What a fun, engaging, clear, and insightful conversation that was with Lee Camp. Again, as I often say at the end of these By the Book episodes, I hope you as the listener got at least half of the value that I received from having these conversations. So I love sending these out to you. A number of you have reached out in recent weeks and said that the By the Book episodes are your favorite and your reading list is growing bigger and faster than you can catch up with and that's okay um welcome to my world so it's the same thing but we love to read good books and engage with authors whose thinking can sharpen our own and clarify for us exactly what it means to be faithful citizens of god's kingdom while we are in fact living in another kingdom and however we want to define those terms lee's book is a fantastic introduction and um, a fantastic way to begin engaging this as he very clearly and succinctly defines terms and helps us wrap our minds around tricky concepts. So um, unbinding the Bible listeners, thank you so much for continuing to tune in. We'll have another episode next week and then I'm going to take a short break over the holidays, but continue to spread the word about the podcast, um, leave a rating or a review send some of the buy the book episodes to somebody as a Christmas gift along with the book itself and maybe they'll want to jump in and can engage you in a conversation about some of these great topics. I hope you all have a fantastic week. Talk to you next time.